Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago, when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today, the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally, and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Helen Thompson to the podcast. Helen is Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge and a Fellow and Director of Studies at Clare College, Cambridge. Her current research concentrates on the political economy of energy and the long history of the democratic, economic and geopolitical disruptions of the 21st century. Her new book, Disorder, was published in February. Well, thank you very much, Helen, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a pleasure. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about your new book. You just arrived, um, and thank you for that. Um, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And uh, I think you've got it right there. Um, uh, certainly uh, where we are today, difficult times. But uh, maybe before we talk uh, about, about the book, uh, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what you do, Helen? So I'm a professor of political economy in the Department of Politics and International Studies um, at Cambridge. Um, I've worked in Cambridge for, well, since 1994. And I I started getting really interested in energy issues probably around 2013. So I've been thinking about energy for nearly a a decade now, but it was not something I actually spent any time on really in the first part of my the first half of my academic um, career was really in the early 2010s. I think the shale boom in particular that um, piqued my interest. Uh, And then I started to think about it uh, in the context of the disruption really to at least Western economies that China's rising energy needs had had brought about. And that's, that's really how this whole headspace, if you like, that I've been in for the last few years in rising disorder came about. We're facing all kinds of crises at the moment, the underlying environmental breakdown and collapse, the uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine, and still still dealing with all kinds of COVID problems. But just from an environmental or climate perspective, I, I'm wondering, what, what is it that worries you the most about this particular time? I think that it's, two, it's twofold, really. It's the conjunction of our present tense energy difficulties with fossil fuels that are really being brought to the fore. When I say fossil fuels, I mean about now fossil fuels in their own terms. So the supply of energy, fossil fuel energy in relation to the demand for it and the geopolitics around the supply. And these issues have really been brought to the fore, obviously, by the, the war in Ukraine and the immensity on the other side of the energy transition just what is required in order for us to, if not completely leave fossil fuels energy behind, at least make a very serious dent in our need um, for it so that we can address um, climate change. 
And what worries me the most, I guess, is, is the way in which how it's going to be possible for us to manage collectively these conflicting predicaments. And they both seem to me have a certain urgency to them. Yes, yes. What gives rise to optimism, would you say? Do, do you have any optimism? Or are there some trends, some seeds, some, some something that you see that, that uh, give you hope? Yeah, I, I'd say there are two things that give me some optimism. The first of them is actually that in energy crises like we're living through at the moment, then it becomes so much easier for people to understand the importance of energy, the centrality of it to our entire way of life. And I think in, so to speak, normal times, although I'm really convinced we've had many normal times of late, um, but in periods when you know energy prices are relatively um, low, I think it's incredibly easy for politics um, for both politicians and citizens to lose focus on the centrality of energy. So once you get into a period of energy shocks, it actually forces everybody to take energy much more seriously. And we should actually be taking energy questions seriously all the time. The second thing that gives me some encouragement is, is since I do think that we can't deal with climate change and we can't deal with the energy transition without some element at least of, of sacrifice, I think that what the pandemic showed, and in some respects, what some of the reaction to the war in Ukraine um, has shown, is that enough people are willing to contemplate sacrifices in ways, and and in fact, during the COVID period, the pandemic period at its most intense, made deep um, sacrifices. And so that presumption, I think, that politicians had really for a lot of the 2000s and in the 90s that actually all you had to do to do well in politics was to consider economic growth uh, and employment um, in relation to that economic growth and that other things didn't really matter and were um, peripheral and you certainly couldn't be asking citizens to make any material sacrifices. I think that phase of politics is is over now. Yes, yes. And that's a, that also gives me that also gives me some encouragement. Yes. And also uh, something maybe we can discuss later is that um, in a crisis, um, as the, I guess the Chinese ideogram, it's also a time of opportunity, I suppose, potentially at least in terms of thinking about things in a new way, thinking about new ways of dealing with problems and uh, maybe radical perspectives that might not be otherwise available. Um, and I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on uh, what the possibilities are there vis-a-vis the weight of uh, the status quo or existing ways of dealing with things. Um, yeah, in, in due course. Um, one of the uh, interesting uh, aspects, I suppose, of the book was drawing together these different perspectives, the the you know, the geopolitical, the economic, the, the bringing together the fossil fuels, the finance, ideas of democracy, and weaving them together Um uh, and this interconnectedness is, is is certainly a striking feature. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where that idea uh, came in terms of writing the book and what you think, what kind of insights, I suppose, do you hope it privileges by weaving those together? That's a, that's an interesting question, Bogle. Um, I think in terms of where the origins of the book in this respect came, I think that they came really from what happened for me in 2016. So during the course of 2016, with my scholar's hat on, I was writing a short book about oil um, called 
oil and the what became called oil and the Western economic um, crisis. And I had to write that book quite quickly for various reasons um, against a quite tight deadline. And I was doing it through the course of the Brexit referendum um, and then the aftermath of the referendum that um, summer. And on the one hand, I had my head you know, in a lot of the difficulties that oil caused, not least from monetary policy. And on the other, I was trying to make sense of, as a citizen of why the United Kingdom's membership of the European Union was unravelling. And I'd come to the conclusion, really, I guess, before I'd started writing the oil book, that the the fault line that was most immediately playing out in the early 2010s was the position of the United Kingdom as a member of the single market and a non-member of the euro and possessing in London the financial, the offshore financial centre of the, the eurozone and that that had had certain consequences, including the increase in migration to the United Kingdom and England in particular from Southern European um, countries from 2000, late 2012 onwards. And with my oil hat on, I knew that one of the reasons or a fundamental reason for that macroeconomic divergence between the United Kingdom and the Eurozone um, from 2011 with the decisions that were made by the Eurozone, sorry, by the European Central Bank in response to high oil prices in 2011 that unlike the Federal Reserve Board and the Bank of England, the European Central Bank raised interest rates twice in response to $100 plus oil prices um, that year. And that played a quite significant part in the Eurozone economy going back into recession at the time in which the UK economy was um, recovering. So I guess I had this sense that something that was going on, Brexit, that looked like it had nothing to do with oil, actually, there was some underpinning to the events as they were um, unfolding in the energy um, sector. And I think I started there uh, and then started to use that as a lens, really, for thinking about other things that happened during the course of 2016, obviously, um, most particularly Trump, Donald Trump's election um, in November of 2016. And then I would say that more generally, that the more that I got interested in, in oil, and I very much did come at it from the monetary aspects to begin with, because that's what I knew about the most in relation to the work that I'd previously done as a political economy um, scholar, the more interested I got in geopolitics and the more I taught myself in some sense to think geopolitically. And once you do that, then you start to see connections between quite a lot of things, I think, that you wouldn't otherwise um, see. And so what started off as kind of like, well, I can see a particular, you know, a very specific interaction here between oil, monetary policy, Eurozone crisis, Britain's membership of the, the European Union, I, I widened out um, from, from that point. Yeah, very interesting. Um, uh, uh, because, yeah, the, the geopolitical uh, side of things is fascinating. And, and uh, Something I've struggled to to get to 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 understand. I suppose I spoke to Gerald Butts from the Eurasia organization company about aspects of this in terms of looking at the energy transition and uh, geopolitical relationships. And I I look forward to maybe digging into that a little bit um, later on. Now, uh, in some of your recent talks and indeed uh, in the book as well, um, 
I get a sense that um, the scale of the challenge of the energy transition is, uh, in your eyes, uh, somewhat underestimated, um, and that this is important uh, in terms of the narrative and, and, and the way we look at things and the kind of solutions we, we see. And certainly there's such a uh, tsunami uh, of, of, of net zero commitments and uh, everybody's on board for these kind of ideas, it seems. Um, and yet you talk to someone like Backlab Schmiel or, or someone like that who, you know, who, who's looked at various energy transitions and these are long, they take, you know, decades and decades and uh, complex. Um, I'm just wondering uh, what, what you think in terms of uh, the, the, the scale of the, the energy transition that maybe is, is somewhat neglected in, in mainstream or, or even a, a general discussion. I'd say two things. And one of them is the point that you've just made, that if we, if we look at uh, like past energy transitions that they've taken place over long periods of time, and in some sense, I think, at least with the most recent ones historically, that it's even a bit mis- even a, a bit of a misnomer to say that they're transitions or they're transitions of a particular kind. So when oil starts to become more important, it doesn't mean that coal stops being yes. important. It means that oil is added to the energy mix and you know, the world's still using um you know, increasing the amount of coal that it's using. I think there was maybe like one year in the middle of the 2010s when that wasn't um, when the, that wasn't so when China's coal consumption um, came down. So the stories of, of energy transitions in the age of fossil fuels, at least, have been the stories of adding more energy sources, not directly replacing one energy source with another. And that's playing um, out with with renewable energy to some extent at the moment. But why does that matter? Yeah. Do you think um, generally uh, underestimating does does that Im- Im suggest that at some level that uh, the kinds of policies that are being considered, uh, the gravity with which the situation is being uh, uh, thought about, uh, is is less? I mean, I think that one of the things that's really that's really difficult is that if you say if you don't take the scale of the energy transition seriously enough, um, then you can't, I think, make good judgments about time, and you can't understand, I think, the difficulties that carrying on using fossil fuel energies as we must will pose in their own terms while we're also trying to escape them. So I think that the danger has been that we've what we've ended up in a situation where we think in two binary terms about it. So we think, look, we're only being serious about the energy transition and green energy if we're making sure there's no more investment in, in, in fossil fuel energy. And that kind of, it makes sense in green energy terms to think that way, but it doesn't make sense in terms of the overall energy situation, if the consequence of what we're doing is, is that we run into such tight fossil fuel energy constraints that actually the worst kind of fossil fuel energy, in particular coal, we end up increasing the usage of coal, just to give like one example. So if we're indifferent to the supply of gas in the world um, economy and think, oh, it doesn't matter because it's fossil fuel energy, we're trying to get away from um, gas. We don't address that, then what's going to happen, and we can already see this in what's gone on in the last few months, I would say, is, is that coal consumption is going to go come up, go up because gas becomes incredibly expensive. Countries substitute coal for gas into um, you know, electricity um, 
generation. So this whole, it's either one thing or the other that we can be serious about seems to me to be getting us into really considerable um, difficulty. The other thing I would say is that the problem of not understanding the scale of it is that it allows us to carry on with what has been generally, I would say, a taboo, though I think the war has begun to change this, about considering whether energy consumption needs to be reduced. And I think that there's been a deep political aversion in Western democracies for really going back at some parts to the 80s, but maybe a little bit um, later, to consider the possibility of reduced energy consumption as a way of dealing with our energy and predicaments. It's kind of like labelled, okay, that was what Jimmy Carter did, tried to do, and look how much trouble it got Jimmy Carter um, into. But if we're being realistic about the energy transition, it's quite difficult, I think, to see how we can carry on assuming that the world economy can carry on using ever more energy. Um, if we look at it in terms of the position of Western countries, um, where you know the highest, where the energy consumption is highest per capita, whether we can carry on like this in a world in which we're trying to have an energy transformation, and the poorest countries in the world are trying to use more energy, not less um, energy. So, unless we're at least willing to discuss the question of how much energy that we will consume, I think it's really quite difficult. Um, to be serious about the energy transition. Yeah, so there seems to be a lot more uh, discussion now about ideas of energy efficiency um, mm. and um, the importance of energy efficiency and certainly growing growing attention, but maybe less so um, the sacred uh, uh, holy grail of, of, of economics in terms of uh, economic growth. Um, and I just had a little search. I, I'm not sure whether it was accurate or not in, in your book to see whether you 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 had any reference to degrowth theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the idea of uh, you know uh, relentless economic growth, and you know you take just even two two and a half percent or whatever those kind of growth rates are over 20 years, they you know you start to double output and, and so forth with, with massive I- impacts and so forth. Have ideas like that been on on your radar? Yeah, I mean. I think that the you know, the degrowth arguments, or some at least of the degrowth arguments, have to be taken um, seriously. Um, I think that if we just look at it in um, ecological terms, I think it's hard to get round the claim that there are limits to growth. To use that phrase from the yes. you know, the, the Club of Rome book back in um, 1972. I think the the difficulty with the degrowth um, position is that how do you begin to get to grips with the political implications of what that means, including for the you know ability of states um, to finance themselves and do the things that are necessary um, investment wise in order for a energy transition to take place i think uh, to think that energy transition is taking place and at the same time that growth in the world economy is coming to an end that's quite also pretty difficult too you know, the the need for investment for the energy transition to take place and the need for investment in technological innovation in particular um you know requires confidence about future markets and it's quite difficult to bring about that confidence if the other side of the message is well, we're not going to see any more growth. I suppose it's sectoral. The ideas, the growth, the degrowth is focused on particular areas 
rather than you know necessarily as a whole but um in the book, you talk about these kind of, uh, we talked about the various different transitions, you know, the transition from the age of coal, uh, where Britain was at the you know, leading economic power to uh, age of uh, oil and, and coal, I suppose, still still around, um, where the United States were, were you know, the, the leading economic power and that were moving into, uh, hopefully, uh, some more, you know, world of renewables and electrification and, and uh, that age might belong to China in some sense, however you, you frame that, or, or certainly the Americans may, may see see that. And I guess there is this underlying, uh, I mean, analysts talk about this underlying uh, rivalry between, you know, America and China um, economically as to, you know, who will be the, you know, economic superpower or, or America holding its position in the global economy and, and ideas like that. Um, and I'm just wondering... Um, what you think about that in particular the relationship between America and China, the geopolitical aspects of that, how, how that might impinge or uh, impact questions around the energy transition. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting if you look at the trajectory of the last three American administrations where China energy climate issues are concerned so if you start with the Obama administration, um, that Obama did want a somewhat more hawkish policy towards China. That was what the point of the pivot to Asia, as it was called, was about, to try to contain China economically and to some extent militarily in the Pacific, particularly in relation to the, the South China Sea. And at the same time, though, Obama wanted a partnership with China about climate change. So the prelude to the Paris climate accord in 2015 was the bilateral agreement between Obama and Xi Jinping agreed in, in 2014. And indeed, Obama went to, um, to China in order to procure, to finalise that um, agreement. So there was the idea at that point that you could compartmentalise, you could take US-China strategic rivalry seriously, but you could say, look, where climate's concerned, and that means obviously where green energy is concerned, we can be partners and our cooperation is necessary for if the world is going to be serious about this emergency. Obviously, Donald Trump's administration had got no interest in um, climate change. But I think that even leaving that aside, you can see a juncture before Trump actually arrives, arrived in office. So in the last year or so of Obama being in office, which was Xi Jinping's turn to Made in China 2025, where he made it pretty explicit that he saw China's future as the green energy superpower, if you like, and he wanted China to dominate the manufacturing supply chains around green energy and around electric um, vehicles. And that didn't necessarily mean he didn't want to cooperate with the US about climate change, but that idea that you could just sort of compartmentalise the two things out of the geopolitical rivalry, I think disappeared at that point and you can see in Washington a, a reaction against that that's partly because they also fear the high-tech implications of made in China 2025 but I think that there's a growing sense and Trump just in some sense articulated it in his own peculiar way and it was more consensual in Washington than that that the US had to get serious about strategic rivalry with China across the board and that was also going to include the green energy future and electric vehicles future and the metals on which green energy um, 
depends. And although when Biden came into office, his climate you know, representative, John um, Kerry, or at least his external climate representative, John Kerry, was very keen on going back to the Obama position of compartmentalizing climate and green energy out. And then saying, well, the rest of, if you like, the State Department can get on with the rest of it to do with um, with, with rivalry with um, China. Again, that position just hasn't hold. I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to, to to hold on to that position any longer. When it's very clear that the Chinese leadership thinks in strategic terms about green energy and thinks about China's future power in those terms, and hopes that in a green energy dominated world that China will have much less of a foreign energy dependency problem. Indeed, in some sense, I would say the Chinese leadership hopes that in the green energy dominated world, everybody else will have a China metal dependency um, issue. So you, I don't think you can really just disentangle and compartmentalize out climate change and green energy from the overall geopolitical state of affairs between the US and China. Yeah, yeah. I mean... China has, I guess, like many parts of the world, a Middle Eastern uh, energy dependency. How is that changing, would you say, relationship between China and Russia um, under the radar at the moment or the focus? Um, do you see that as a possibly changing? Yeah, I mean, I think that what China has tried to do really ever since, in a way, that its foreign energy dependency problem in particular early on its foreign oil dependency problem came to the fore which was after 1993 which was the last year that China was um, self-sufficient in oil production is that it's gone for a diversity of supply approach uh, and it has cultivated the African oil producing countries particularly Angola to some extent it's cultivated um, Venezuela though that's quite problematic given the state of the Venezuelan oil industry is cultivated Middle Eastern um, producers, um, all of Iran, Iraq and Saudi Arabia, and it's cultivated um, Russia. It hasn't wanted to be dependent, acutely dependent on supply from any one place. And it's tried to be strategic about the means by which oil and gas supplies reach China in relation to pipelines, in relation to when they come over and by tankers. So I think that China doesn't want, the Chinese leadership wouldn't want to choose between the Middle East as a place where, from which it receives oil and gas and, and Russia. It wants both. I think there are a number of complications to that even before we get to the, the, the war in Ukraine in that it essentially left Russia and Saudi Arabia competing for the Chinese um, market and although there's been considerable energy cooperation, certainly price cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Russia since the autumn of 2016, that fight for the Chinese market share, I think, is a somewhat at least unstable part of that relationship still. And then we move on to what's happened with the war, because what we see on the European side, obviously, is an attempt to break with dependency on Russian gas in particular, which is where Europe's dependency is the, the deepest. And, and that means that the Asian countries, not just China, but the others as well, that have high levels of gas consumption, um, now have got to compete 
with European countries, if European countries are really serious about this, for seaborne gas, in particular seaborne gas from the United States, so the American shale gas producers. And the Asian countries have already found that that means that um, the European countries absolutely desperate now for gas um, will outbid them in the spot markets. And you know, there have been instances of you know, like vessels that have left the um the Gulf of um Mexico, so the, from the sort of you know the Louisiana uh, coast, headed through Asia to Asia through the Panama Canal, and then when bids for the gas comes from a European country, then the vessels head back through the Panama Canal from the Pacific into the Atlantic, and off they go to um, Europe, and that's quite a nightmare scenario, I think, for Asian countries. Um, I mean, China at least has got a pipeline, uh, can take pipeline gas from Russia, but the others. The others can't because there's no the pipelines um, don't go um, to um, them. So this question of what the effect of a serious European boycott of Russian energy will have for Asian countries is going to be very, very acute. Um, and it may well lead to Asian countries needing to double down on their own existing energy relationship with Russia. Yeah, and, and clearly Germany is a key uh, player here and, and a very difficult position. Um, and, and, and what's happening there must highlight um, the whole situation in Ukraine as well. Um, generally, the, the, the risks of this kind of energy dependency, um, how, how do you see that playing out? I think that Germany is in an incredibly you know, difficult um, position now. Uh, you know, it does for political reasons at home and abroad need to try to reduce its um, gas dependency in particular on um, Russia. But that gas relationship is deeply embedded in German you know, industry, um, not least the, you know, the chemical um, companies and the um, BASF. And that has a lot of implications for other parts of the, the, the German economy that are dependent upon those the German industry that depended on those um, chemicals. I think that it's very difficult for this particular German government in which the Greens participate, as you say, um, Virgil, to do another U-turn on the, the nuclear um, question because, you know, there have been a number of U-turns. Um, when Merkel's government first came in, it undid the SPD Green government's commitment um, to decommission, and then Merkel changed her mind in in two thousand and eleven, and went back to the the decommissioning um, by this year uh, policy. Uh, if it were still a grand coalition of the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats in power in Berlin, it might be, I think, possible to imagine that there will be another U-turn from Germany. But I think with the Greens' participation in this, that makes it incredibly difficult. I mean, the whole origins of the German Green Party lie in the anti-nuclear movement in West Germany in the 1970s, the anti-nuclear movement. That anti-nuclear movement is the reason why West Germany alone of the the, the large Western democracies has got a significant um, Green um, party in that sense, nuclear and being anti-nuclear power is the Green Party's fundamental raison d'etre. I think that if we turn to the energy transition, 
and that problem of like binary thinking, which I think has to some extent hindered the way in which Germany has dealt with this um, problem. I think what we're going to see is more pressure um, for supporting domestic or supporting um, oil and gas production, including perhaps what little there is for Germany in the North Sea. I read a story this morning that's suggesting that there, there might be some encouragement um, or support for some more North Sea um, production. I think the really interesting thing, though, in terms of the European Union, will be the way that this question of nuclear power now plays out. Because even if we go back to last autumn, we could see France leading a group of, I think there were nine other um, EU um, governments that wrote to the European Commission asking for nuclear power to be included in the EU's green taxonomy. And Germany, not just Germany, but Germany and Austria were very, very strongly opposed to um, that. So as the problems of the energy transition as it's presently constructed in the EU, which don't include nuclear power, come to the fore, I think we can expect to see the French in particular putting a lot of pressure uh, on the centre of the, the European Union, both in terms of the Commission, but also in terms of decision making within the Council of Ministers. Um, to say, look, we need to revisit this um, question, and that if we're just very pure about nuclear, purist about um, nuclear power, the energy transition is going to get stuck. And I'm not saying that because I think that one should get too um, what's the way wishful about the possibilities of quick transition with nuclear power. Either it's not that the difficulties in terms of the expansion of nuclear power from the 70s onwards only came about um, because of West German opposition. Western Republic opposition to nuclear power. It's more complicated um, than um, that. But I think we're going to see the issue of nuclear power contested not just within individual countries, but more actually at the European within the European Union itself. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I'm wondering about um, the question of uh, lobbies. Um, fossil fuel lobbies, um, the status quo. I mean, and also the question of subsidies. We always uh, see these uh, eye-popping figures for the kinds of subsidies for fossil fuel industry, but um, it's more complex than that, I guess. <laughs> and um, we've seen um, certainly with the Gijon in, in France, although it becomes something else, but um, the impact of, uh, of, of prices uh, I see in America to some extent too, but you know, uh, governments need to be quite cautious. Uh, I guess there are significant political uh, implications if they get it wrong in, in terms of who, who bears the cost of the transition or or any energy increases in energy um it's, it's certainly an issue in france even though it's uh you know it's it's it, it's it's imported it's coming from from abroad and, and in the uk as well you can already see the lobbying and people talking about greenflation and, and and ideas like that yeah i mean i think that one of the things that we we're going to see a lot of pressure for is subsidies for prices so to speak so subsidizing consumers i mean by um, that I mean was one of the reactions I think particularly in Italy to the high energy prices last um, autumn was to for the state basically to provide more money to its citizens so that they will be able to afford their um, energy um, bills. And, and, and right now in Italy, where would the, the bulk of the subsidies actually be? 
I presume, I mean, I, I, I don't know the details, but my, my understanding of what was going on in, in Italy was um, subsidising of electricity prices and of domestic gas prices. But for the consumer? For the consumer, yes. yeah. Okay. And, and, and I think that that's where the, I mean, if you think about it in terms of, the, you know, the, the possibilities that governments have got faced with high energy prices that many of their citizens um, can't um, afford, they can do what been the UK government's you know, like policy of of basically putting caps on the prices, and then at a certain point when enough of the providers can't make any kind of profit at those caps, they have to get rid of them, as we've seen what's happening, or at least change them, as we've seen what's happening in the UK, and then then a big energy price um, hits, or you can provide you know direct transfers to citizens to help them pay for their energy bills whilst letting the bill that the prices themselves be like at market prices or you can get into the business which is clearly not what anybody in western democracies wants to get into of the rationing of energy i mean it, it's what happened in the 1970s but in part it's precisely because it happened in the 1970s and there was the political backlash against it that there was that that's not a route that anybody really wants to go down um, but at the same time, it's not difficult to see how you get to a point, particularly perhaps during the you know the height of, of winter where gas prices are um, concerned, that energy rationing is the last resort uh, as a way of uh, as a way of um, of dealing with these problems. And and we can already see, I think, energy rationing taking place in some middle income countries, including actually China. You know, like last. I think it was between September and early November um, last last autumn when China was rationing electricity to industry. I mean, I think that obviously the preference will be rationing energy to industry before it's rationing energy to um, households. But it wouldn't surprise me if the countries that are faced with these dilemmas about whether to ration or not start to be countries with higher GDP per capita than the ones we, where we've seen this so far. Yeah, yeah. And to what extent does the the fact that so much of the emissions are concentrated, either in terms of countries or in terms of demographics, the wealthiest people, um, the richest 10% responsible for, I don't know, what is over half of cumulative global emissions and 1% for something like 15% or more, uh, in terms of kind of policies that you would put in place? Yeah, I mean, I think that this this is a a huge deal and in some sense I think it is more important to think about it in terms of the income distribution and who's using the energy rather than um, by country I mean I'm not saying the country issue doesn't um, come into it but you know the bottom line is really quite simple you know the richer that you are the more energy that you um, consume and the more fossil fuel energy that you're consuming um, the more that your consumption is responsible for carbon uh, emissions. So although a lot of the political reaction um, to climate change um, policy um, tends to come from people lower down the income scale, and you can see that, I think, in you know in the Gilets jaunes um, movement in France in its beginnings, as you say, and the reaction against the diesel fuel Actually, the people whose energy consumption needs to come down um, are actually not the people who then become who've been the most politically responsive 
um, to changing uh, energy um, policies. But I think that this question of, well, what is the consumption of energy going to look like if the energy transition is to be successful, it has really got to come to the fore. And I think, you know, cars is a good example, you know, like of, of that. There's kind of a presumption, I think, in a lot of the way in which net zero is talked about that there will still be a, we will still have mass car societies in Western countries, um, mass car ownership societies and that in Western countries um, as the energy transition um, un, unfolds. It's just that cars will now be electric and they won't um, run on you know, like diesel and um, petrol. Um, but that's, it seems to me, uh, uh, should we just say an untested assumption that that's possible and indeed whether it's desirable um, or not. And I would, I think part of the political risk in the situation in which we now face is that we actually drift off in the age of electric vehicles into minority car ownership. So it's still a kind of presumption that if you like successful people own cars, um, but without that actually being financially viable for many people. And if you go back to the beginnings of the history of car ownership, really before the Model T and the Henry Ford's Model T, at least in the in the United States, then that sense that the car was a symbol of, was both something that only the rich could afford and was a symbol of being rich and successful was something that was very politically dangerous. I think in the in 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 the United States, I mean, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, before he became president, said he thought that. Um, minority car ownership. I didn't quite use that language, but that's what um, he meant. The rich owning cars, uh, and only the rich owning um, cars, was the surest thing that was pushing the United States towards socialism. And when Henry Ford introduced the, the Model T car, he very much thought about it as a as a democratizing moment. That it was making car ownership. He was democratizing car ownership, and he thought about that in political terms as well as in selling cars. Um, term. So I think that this is this is pretty difficult political territory, and I don't think enough serious thought has gone into um, what dealing with this problem um, is likely to entail politically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because presumably there are policies that that would, you know, uh, I think in Paris they've, you know, uh, odd and, and and even numbers on on plates driving in the city and things like that, which. Mm. I mean, maybe you have two cars to get around that, but presumably there are policies that can that can be designed that take into account those kind of considerations. Yeah, but I think before you can have policies, you've got to kind of make a judgment about what you're trying to achieve. So, you know, if you think the future, if politicians think the future is um, everybody or most many people at least owning electric um, cars then policy would develop in one um, direction. But if you're not confident that that can be brought about, so you're not confident that actually there can, if you like, be the democratisation of electric vehicles in which there was the democratisation of, yeah. um, of, of um, cars, then you would think that actually the most important thing was to concentrate on you know, mass public transit. Yes, yeah rather than trying to achieve that. And that seems to me to be pretty consequential thing, which of those directions that you decide 
to go in. And there's no point trying to design sort of policies at the micro level before you've got a clear sense of which of them that you're trying to achieve and which of them that you have good reasons that you think that you might be able to achieve. Out of crisis can come opportunities as well. I mean, I guess the danger of uh, this moment, at least, is that um, this becomes an excuse to continue the reliance on fossil fuels. You know, we've seen coal miners' share price has been picking up. The slowdown in coal plant shutdown plans and things like that, future prices for coal and things. And of course, it's always presented as a temporary kind of thing. If uh, you would agree that maybe in moments like this, it, it, we, we could think about, try and think about radical ideas and types of radical change. And I guess, as you say, the bedrock of that is understanding that there, it is a crisis or it's an existential crisis. Um, and then to think about what kind of policies might one be willing to consider in the current moment. And I read that Germany's looking at potentially nationalizing the country's gas distribution network. You know, Robert Poland in the US has talked about nationalization of the oil companies. Uh, I wonder, have you any ideas uh, like that or, or what you think about that general direction? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any particular merit in the nationalization route. I'm not necessarily saying that there isn't. I, I mean, what I'm saying is, is that it's, it's not clear to me that nationalization kind of gets to the core of the, the problems. I think where fossil fuels are concerned, we've got to be like realistic about the timeframes that we're talking about for moving away um, from them. And in a way to go back to the point I made earlier, if we just take the, the present situation with you know, coal, a resurgent coal sector in some sense, clearly a pretty important part of the explanation for that um, are the is the situation um, with gas um, at the moment. And that is what's driving uh, increased interest in coal and increased coal consumption in some countries because gas has simply become too expensive for some countries to use in electricity. These programs take, or these these projects take quite a while as well. They can't just be turned on and turned off again. Yeah. And I mean, and of course, if the past is any guide, these policies will be extended. There does seem to be, you know, pain tomorrow rather than pain today. You know, if we can avoid this, there are forces in play that make that a, a more likely. I mean, if you if you want to say like what policies could you know reduce the at the moment the supply pressures on fossil fuel energy around fossil fuel energy the only instant answer to that any immediate answer to that it would be reduced consumption and then that has all kinds of the knock-on consequences that we know in terms of um for economies and in terms of um economic growth and the um the prospects for you know more rapid recovery um from the um the, the lockdowns of um, or the shutdown really of the world economy for part of 2020. But I think that we can't, what's the way of putting this, is we've got to be realistic about what can be done in the short term in relation to the different, you know, the fo different fossil fuel um, energies. And if we want to say that the priority is, is getting rid of coal as quickly as possible, then that might mean that we need to tolerate more investment in gas. Um, and I think, and I, I'm not saying that argument is necessarily decisive, but I'm just saying that I think that they are the kind of, you know, they are the kind of decisions that that that, that have to um, be made because 
our present tense dependency on fossil fuel energy um, is such that all that we can do in one sense is shuffle the production and consumption from one place to the other. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. But presumably, if the cost of capital for fossil fuel companies is increasing and the cost of capital for renewable energy is decreasing, and these are Mm -hmm. substantial and, you know, ongoing changes, those kind of things, which which are also, uh, they can happen through the market, I guess, but they can also happen uh, through the ways in which central banks, you know, will take assets and do repos and all that kind of thing from various companies. And- yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it that, that, that um, at least until the last few months or so, perhaps, um, that there was a significant movement in the allocation of um, capital you know, like away from um, fossil fuel energy and in the direction of um, green um, energy, and in particular, you know, like investment in the oil and um, gas sectors really fell quite you know, significantly from um, 2015 onwards, and that wasn't any. And that change happened prior to the move towards ESG investing. It was in the first instance driven by the the slump in oil and gas prices from sort of late from late um, 2000 and. Um, 14 and there's also you know like no doubt you know like whatsoever that there needs to be you know like you know significantly more investment in um in green energy um sectors i still think it comes back to the question though like what do we do uh about the the present tense where fossil fuel energy cons- is concerned and how long do we think the present moment um, and I mean by that, where fossil fuel energy is still going to you know, represent more than 80% of world energy consumption is going to um, last. And how do we think that maps out in relation to the, the present tense difficulties around the supply of oil and gas um, in um, particular? Um, because if you could be confident, let's say, that a really decisive change was coming, particularly on the technology technological side over the next say five years or so or in the next um, 10 years or so then that would change the perspective that you could have on how to deal with the the present tense supply issues around um, oil and gas if we're not confident about that and if there's not enough investment to be confident um, about that then it becomes quite hard to get away from the it comes quite hard to you know put down the argument that um, as well as investing in more green energy we need to invest in um, oil and gas as well, and particularly perhaps gas uh, as a transit, a potential um, transition um, fuel. And I think this gets to the core of the difficulty in a way that we face, or the predicament that we face is trying to get the timelines, if you like, l- lined up, trying to think about how different things are developing in parallel with each other and where the crisis points are going to um, be and where we might be confident that a technological breakthrough, say on, you know, like storage um, for wind and solar comes. These are the things that are, you know, exceptionally um, exceptionally difficult to do. But I think that there's no alternative but to try to think about everything, if you like, at the same well, time. Yeah, it's interesting you say that um, because the idea of industrial policy hasn't been a very popular one in the West for a long time, uh, maybe in, in some places, yeah. but certainly in the Americanized uh, version and that's within the EU as well in terms of different sectors. The batteries, for example, or something like that's not so easy. But China has been very successful in doing this, in focusing on particular areas, uh, you know, putting a lot of money into it, mm. um, all kinds of companies growing and so forth. 
And, you know, it, it, it does seem to be the case that, you know, other, other countries, even America, are looking at policies like this and saying, well, you know, it can be done. Is, is there a question around, you know, market-led approaches versus uh, more state-oriented approaches? I think it's Mariana Musicata talks a little bit about this as well in terms of the mission economy. You know, uh, governments can put together pretty uh, tantalizing um, tax policies for one, and, you know, and focus in this way. I mean, storage, as you say, crucially important. What do you think in terms of a question of a more interventionist government in that way and industrial policy and so forth? I don't know, in the UK and Europe, and what's your feeling of the direction? Yeah, well, I think there's actually already been a, a quite significant shift here in reaction, actually, to what China did. I think that Made in China 2025 served as quite a wake-up call across Western yes. countries, including the United States. And I think... Instead of it being, you know, the working assumption that industrial policies were didn't work and they belong to a failed age, so to speak, you know, going back to the 60s and 70s or whatever, the working assumption became we have to have an industrial um, strategy because China's got one and we're going to get left behind economically and in high tech and in green energy if we if we don't. So I, I would say if you if you look at what was going on, like you know, like prior to the pandemic in European countries and really from Biden coming into office uh, in January 2021 in the United States, that that shift towards an assumption that state intervention is necessary and that industrial policies are necessary, that that had that absolutely had um, taken hold. And I think it had taken hold in a way that was that made green energy and the transition to green energy central to the concept of what an industrial strategy um, was for. I think that the difficulty that governments face now is is not that those arguments have gone away. Quite the contrary, um, the the need for um, the state intervention to deal with the energy transition, I think, is just as clear as it was um, it, as it was then. The thing that's come back to the fore um, is the present tense problems around fossil fuel um, energy and the ways in which uh, they can. Um, both be a, a serious geopolitical hindrance like Europe's Russian energy um, dependency and that they can be a, a really severe economic problem when prices rise as high as that they've um, done. First, the shock to the, in the gas markets in last um, autumn and now really across the energy board since the um, war um, began. So I think the working assumption now is that it's industrial policy plus energy strategy more generally. And interestingly, I would say that's exactly where China has been for some time now. I don't think um, China, the Chinese leadership, has ever really gone for this binary thinking of thinking it's like one thing or the other. I think that they've constantly been trying to work all the fronts at the same time. Yeah, very interesting. Inflation, just finally, um, does that change things? I think it makes things more like politically. Um, it makes things more politically uh, difficult. Um, it makes monetary policy more difficult because the central banks simultaneously don't want to look like they're not responding to obvious inflation. But raising interest rates isn't going to do anything to deal with energy inflation, other than by simply like depressing demand and pushing economies into um, recession. Um, I think that one thing that the war has made clear in a way which I 
think was unfortunately not clear in the autumn is is that it's not the green energy transition itself that's driving energy inflation. I think that's was always unfair when that argument was being made um, in the um, in the autumn. That the reason why energy inflation is a, is is here because it is because of the relationship between supply and demand, where oil and gas in particular um, are um, concerned. And I think that. The present energy inflation just becomes one more then of those things that um, governments have got to um, treat as important in the context of a whole range of other a, a whole range of other things. And there will have to be, I think, some acceptance of energy inflation because the idea that central banks can take a sort of a hammer, if you like, via monetary policy to economies to to bring it down, I, I think, is untenable. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you so much. What's next for you now? Your your the book's published. I guess you're doing some interviews and talk, talking about that. Have you any other projects on the go hand? Yeah, I'm doing a, an academic project on um, German energy dependency on um, Russia, and I've got um, a few sort of a bit more than half baked, but not completely thought out ideas about another book. Fascinating, wonderful. Well, I wish you the very best of success with all of that, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you today. very much. Great interview. I re- really enjoyed that. It's been a pleasure, Fergal. It really has. Green finance is increasingly presented as a crucial way to address climate change and biodiversity laws. Yet more often than not, financial alchemy is used to obfuscate and repackage dirty activities, which are then rebranded as green, thus maintaining the status quo. The Green Finance Observatory is an independent NGO whose mission is to analyse and decrypt these new financial markets based on pollution and nature's destruction. If you feel it is important to identify and debunk false green finance claims, fight climate change, profiteering and other carbon finance mercenaries, please go to greenfinanceobservatory.org where you can support its work. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.